from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 16, Godzilla vs. Hetera. fans and kaiju lovers and welcome to kaiju vision radio a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value i'm brian scherschel and i'm nathan marchand and in this episode we'll be covering the wonderful godzilla versus hetera uh what an amazing movie this is such a unique film so good uh we're gonna really get into this and see how much uh, we can do Yeah, some of you may be more familiar with this under the title Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster. This is the beginning of of an era of Godzilla films that aren't necessarily the most appreciated. Not a lot of fans like the 70s Godzilla films. Yeah, this is their first 70s film. We've reached a a different era, almost. Yeah. In the same series, still, the Showa series, but things really change. But there's such a big difference between the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Yeah. And uh, I'm hoping that with the, the next few episodes, uh, we've been looking forward to a lot of the, the films from this era, and I'm hoping that we can shed some more light on these movies and help people to actually see that there's more going on with each one of the movies in, the, in this particular decade than you, may have or, than you may have thought. Each one of these entries has something unique to talk about. Our related topics for this episode are pollution and the resulting environmentalist movement in Japan, and the two Nixon shocks. And so with that, we'll start with our short description of the film. Take it away, Nate. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is the defender of the Earth. He comes to Japan to kill Hedera, who threatens the environment. However, he shows no regard for collateral damage since humans sometimes die during his battles. He's more character than creature, displaying behavior such as posturing, taunting, and strategizing. Hetera is an alien life form from a dark, gaseous nebula who landed on Earth in a comet. He metamorphoses through several forms by consuming smog and other pollutants. His only motive is to feed. He displays anthropomorphism such as laughter and taunting while battling Godzilla. Ken Yano is a Japanese schoolboy who has unwavering faith in Godzilla. He assists with his father's research on Hetera and witnesses many of the film's events. His father, Dr. Toru Yano, is scarred by Hetera, which compels him to discover the monster's weakness before the creature wipes out humanity. Yukio Keuchi, Dr. Yano's brother, and his girlfriend, Miki Fujiyama, are Japanese youth who are attacked by Hetera and later stage a protest that becomes a hedonistic party. The human and kaiju plots are unified. Only on rare occasions do the characters' actions have nothing to do with the kaiju. They spend most of their time studying, avoiding, and or battling the monsters. Godzilla fights Hetera while the smog monster attacks a factory, the two of them retreating into the ocean. Hetera attacks Tokyo while pursued by Godzilla. Dr. Yano tells the JSDF to construct two huge electrodes on Mount Fuji to kill Hetera with high temperatures, but these lose power when the kaiju destroy power lines. The partying youth throw torches at Hetera, who kills them all. The JSDF lures Hetera between the electrodes using flashing headlights on trucks. Power is restored momentarily, but lost again. Godzilla powers the electrodes with his atomic ray. 
Hedera barely survives the first dehydration and tries to escape, but Godzilla flies him back to the electrodes for a second dehydration. Godzilla rips Hedera's body apart and dehydrates the pieces. The script co-written by Takeshi Kimura and director Yoshimitsu Bano is a simple and straightforward cautionary tale with a strong environmentalist message. The film had a 90 million yen budget, which was less than half of the money given to the 1960s Godzilla films. It was shot in 35 days with special effects handled by Teruyoshi Nakano. Despite tight schedules, the film features stylized animation sequences, a small but detailed miniature city, and Nakano's trademarked explosions. While the Godzilla suit from Destroy All Monsters was reused again, the multiple forms of Hedera are all implemented quite well using puppets and suitmation. As with any Kimura script, the film is dark, cynical, and often disturbing. However, it's also surreal and includes moments of comic relief such as Godzilla's infamous flying scene. As for tone, it's the gravest film in the franchise since the original Gojira. The film is not as fantastical as it is just really out there. Hedera was unlike any kaiju Godzilla had fought before in terms of design and execution. The film's trippy imagery and countercultural focus made it quite weird and unique. While the film is difficult to classify, it reinforces style elements from Gojira, Ebera Horror of the Deep, and All Monsters Attack. It does so by featuring a dark tone, gruesome deaths, a scarred scientist, young people, a modern soundtrack, an unconventional story and monster, Godzilla as a character, humor, a director who tries new things, a child protagonist, and industrial settings. Bano originally conceived of the film after he saw cities like Yokaichi overrun with smog and the ocean filled with foam from detergent. He wanted to make a movie that addressed the pollution plaguing Japan. Despite the presence of young adult characters and a child character, the film seems to be meant for a general audience. The film was released July 24, 1971 as part of the Summer Toho Champion Film Festival. It grossed 300 million yen with an attendance of 1.74 million, making it Toho's second best grossing film of the year and the fifth highest grossing Japanese film. It was released stateside by AIP as Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster in February 1972, sometimes on double bill with the horror film Frogs. It's a polarizing film for Godzilla fans who either love it or hate it. No footage was cut in the dubbed version, but shots with Japanese text were replaced with English or textless equivalents. The opening theme song, Return the Sun, was replaced with the ditty, Save the Earth. Hedera feeds on Japan's rampant pollution. Counterculture youth feature prominently in the film. Japanese citizens are forced to wear gas masks to avoid breathing the sulfuric fumes emitted by Hedera. Ken seems to have a psychic connection to Godzilla since he foresees his coming in dreams. Environmentalism was a huge timely theme because Japan found itself mired in pollution from its hyper-industrialization. The film seems to frown on the counterculture youth who throw a pseudo-protest party on Mount Fuji because they believe, quote, green pastures exist only in their minds. Faith is touched upon with Ken's belief that Godzilla will save them and eliminate pollution. There's a touch of nihilism in the collateral damage and deaths caused by the kaiju. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part two of the podcast, we give our opinion and do some discussion on the film. So, uh, what do you think of this one? I like this one, but, pardon the pun, it's a strange beast. (laughs) I just unequivocally love it, actually. It's one of my favorite ones. We have some very interesting stories about how we discovered 
this movie, I think. We saw it at two very different points in our fandom. I saw it back in the uh, the early days when I was a teen, but you didn't see it until much more recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was in within the past uh, three years, I think. I got the Blu-ray of it, and I, was, I knew it was going to be quite a ride, but I didn't think it was going to be as good as it turned out to be. I actually ended up loving it right from the you know very first minutes of it. Yeah, I discovered it actually at a small town video store. And I came across this one. I had never seen it anywhere else, mostly because that VHS was uh, was out of print for many, many years. And it had this very unusual painted cover. And I said, I have to take this home and see it. And the other cool thing was that video store was also next to a comic shop. So it was you know, the perfect spot for me. It really was unlike anything I had seen. It was just so strange. But I, I really enjoyed it, despite the strangeness. Actually, I probably liked it because of the strangeness. I like it because it's it's very much, uh, it's almost like it's an independent film. It's probably the most like an independent film out of anything in the franchise, really. This is one of the movies that I would classify as a hybrid film. Because it has components of like three different other movies in it. Namely the original and then also there's a little bit of Ebera, the horror of the deep going on in it stylistically, and then also All Monsters Attack. Yeah, because it's, it's got stuff from all of those. Because it has young people, it has a kid, and... It's but got the seriousness. It's got the seriousness. The people and, actually dying part. Yeah, and a very potent message. And then also up at we the have forefront. A, the setting is actually between this kid's family and the kid's family from the previous movie. They live in very similar circumstances almost yeah most definitely <laughs> it's just it's kind of funny that in the in this movie in the japanese version we actually have a kid named ken and the name kenny has been associated with the kids that show up in the gamera movies and it's mm. the term a kenny has become this term in the fandom referring to obnoxious kid characters in kaiju movies but the funny thing is is that it's only in the dub version of the original gamera where the kid's name Kenny. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I just thought it was funny. I saw a video where this guy was riffing on the was riffing on this movie and made the joke about how oh yeah, great. Now the kid actually is named Ken. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I don't know how weird this movie is though. Really, I mean, I think a lot of people overestimate how weird this movie is. There's there's some weird stuff in it, but for the time that it was made, it it's really revolutionary, but it's also indicative of the kind of movies and television that was being released at the time late 60s early 70s had a lot of hetero like hetero has a lot of that going on and it was very current i still think that this is very much a testament to uh, to yoshimitsu bano the the director of this film he ended up making something that was unlike anything that had that had been seen up to that point in the franchise, and I'm not sure there's really been a Godzilla film that comes close to what we got in this, too. I mean, as you said, it's the most like an independent movie out of all of them, and it's also possibly the only counterculture Godzilla film in the franchise as well. Although I think at the end of the day, it's actually a pretty conservative movie. I would agree with you there. Bono was able to get all of the coolest things to do in movies at the time, and he was able to distill all of those elements into this movie. I do credit him with that. He did a great job at being able to 
give us the best of what was going on at the time. He's very much a, a visionary, I would say. He was trying a lot of very different things in this. Just how the movie is shot. There's some very interesting points where you, you have like these these hetera POV shots when Godzilla's punching at him. And they look really cool. They're only on screen for about a second or two at a time. But unfortunately, I don't think he got as much love for a long time as he should have. Probably not, which is, uh, it's unfortunate, which if you, if you look it up, you'll find the story about how, uh, you know, his work wasn't looked at as very good by some of the people actually in the studio. But well, that's, that's what happens. But I think he was very ahead of his time. I think he probably just got punished for that. Yeah. This is one of the best time capsule type of movies ever made ever. This movie is one of the most daring, bold movies I've seen. It is so different. It's so different from all the other movies that we'd seen before this. Uh, We know Terry Gilliam had to have seen this movie. (laughs) There's no question about it. And this movie is very experimental, too. I mean, for instance, all all these animations, like you said, and then all the the drawings. It's very, very unique, special I, I would have loved to have seen this in a movie theater at the time it was made. If I had been like this age right now, back then, it would have been incredible. Hedera himself is also a very different opponent for Godzilla than what had been seen before with his constant metamorphosing. The fact that he's he is a space monster like Ghidorah, but originally was a microscopic life form that constantly mutated. Yeah, and then it just goes macro, and then it... Yeah, and the only monster I can think of who comes even remotely close, and only in one aspect, and that is Mothra, but only because Mothra metamorphoses, but she doesn't go through nearly as many forms as Hedera does. No, there's just the given metamorphosis with the... because it's a moth. Yeah. But with this, it's like way more complicated and that was and it's such a way out there design that was another one of the defining characteristics of the 70s godzilla films was godzilla's opponents started to become more fantastical they weren't just glorified animals or dinosaurs anymore they were becoming more bizarre they were becoming stranger and because they're they're running out of ideas there are only so many monster ideas that are you know original enough and so I think by the by the time the seventies came around, it's like, what else are we gonna do? We don't we don't know. And then they have to to go further outside the box every time that they invent a new one. But I re- that's one of the things I actually really enjoy about this particular era was seeing how broad you know uh, uh, their imagination could get with uh, with their concepts of these of these creatures. It's very original. Is pretty simple actually because the the Hedera character is he is an extended metaphor for pollution. And it's very in that way is it's actually quite simple. Also, just as as a note though, I mean three hundred and thirty pound costume. My for Hedera. Gosh, which you can tell. I mean that that costume is massive. Yeah, and it's bulbous and it's just count me out of that. No way. Whew. I mean that co- that means that costume outweighed him i mean you have to be strong yeah. to carry that yeah i i amazing i have no idea how i don't think i'd be able to do that for very long the design of hetera is is, is just, 
you can tell somebody put some time into actually figuring out what the monster is yeah and, and, all, and then all these different forms that it takes and yeah well and the thing that's interesting is i noticed that they really paid attention to little details because if you notice hetera is, is kind of glittery and it's because he has a lot of minerals composing him so i thought that was a nice visual way of communicating that mm-hmm. yeah the suit is amazing i think hetera would actually be a creature that I would love to see brought back in a modern film, particularly a modern, like say a big, a big budget Hollywood film. Cause I think they could do some really interesting things with Hedera's composition and the animation, you know, make it, make oh, it CGI Hedera. You mean a CGI Hedera yeah. with like, like the, the sludge is always moving around constantly yeah, you, you and kind really of do anything undulating want. and all of that. Yeah, you could do anything you want. You could have somebody like mocap it. Yeah, and then just CGI all that stuff in. You, yeah, you but I make just it look really incredible. Yeah, but I just think that the textures and everything would just look very visually very interesting. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I don't think Hetera is as high on the the list of Toho creatures to bring back in the MonsterVerse. When that first Nintendo game for Godzilla came out, is the one you just go to yeah, the Monster pl- of Monsters. Pl- yeah, mm-hmm. it's when you would go to all the different planets and in the Jupiter level, the 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 final boss is hetero because there's mm-hmm. like a new monster each mm-hmm. planet you go to blah 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 but then I, I remember at the time i was like what's that <laughs> i what what's a hedora yeah and then and then finally we later on i just got to figure that out but yeah but i was like what i but looking at it in the game i was like i couldn't tell what it was at all it was just this blob thing with this the kind of arm thing that yeah, came out every once you. in a while. And yeah. then it would throw this stuff at you. And I'm like, what is it throwing at me? <laughs> what, are these, what are these blob things? Is this like just a blob monster or what? It's interesting that you bring up uh, bring that up, calling him a blob monster. Because there's a, there's a scene in the movie where Hedera is crawling across a highway. But we don't realize that immediately. It's just we have a couple of the characters sitting in their car. And suddenly this black ooze starts coming across the the, the windshield, windshield and then yeah. they and they look around and they realize it's hetera crawling across and he's consuming mm-hmm. the car so they jump out start running but they barely get out before it's completely covered in the sludge and it reminded me of the blob mm-hmm. with steve mcqueen from back in the 50s yeah it, it heavily does does recall that that kind of imagery in that one particular scene there but getting to particular scenes i mean there's there's a ton of these that, that are so amazing it starts out with this what did you say some people think it looks like a bondian yeah uh, the, beginning with the, yeah, with this, the singer and the and the and the and the crazy imagery the, in yeah, the background all the, yeah, all the stuff going on visually during this um during this it's a very yeah very james bondian sort of a sort of it's opening. almost like a music video yeah too yeah <laughs> the as much as there, you know, the people in the fandom who love this movie really love it, and the ones who don't really don't. So it's kind of polarizing, but it still has left an indelible mark on the fandom. And the original English version, the AIP dub, they made a new version of the of the theme song because in the Japanese the song is called "Return the Sun," and I did find a translation of the lyrics online, but they made this new song that was to the same music and the same tune. And the singer in English even sounds exactly the same as the Japanese singer. Very much so. Pretty yeah. close. They made this new song. It's called Save the Earth. And, you know, the title of that song actually gets recycled later. We, you talked about you know the, the old NES 
Godzilla game. There was one about 10 years ago on the PS2 and the original Xbox that was called Godzilla Save the Earth. So mm-hmm. that's how much of an impression that this song made. Now, I can tell you that the English lyrics for this are there. It's not a translation of Return of the Sun, but uh, the lyrics are very much in the same spirit. Same message. Same sort of message. Unfortunately, the DVD and Blu-ray releases do not include the song. They have the international dub that had been commissioned by Toho and not the AIP dub. You can find the the original sequence on YouTube, or if you really want to be crazy, you can track down that out-of-print VHS if you want to watch it with the AIP dub, which, from what I understand, is the better of the dubbings. Uh, Ken in this movie uh, is we have another Godzilla fanboy right. in this. That's what that's the other thing that's really interesting about this. We have two movies in a row. A bit of a weird connection to Godzilla too. Yeah, it's almost like a psychic. yeah. But it's just it's just interesting because you have two movies in a row where we have that feature kids prominently, and they're both Godzilla fanboys, and both have to do with dreaming. Mm-hmm. Whereas th- with the Some last sort of movie, dreaming or yeah, psychic. with the last movie it was the crux of the entire it was well, one of the cruxes of the entire movie and this one is just one sequence where this kid it sounds like he's reading a school report yeah. it's a voiceover he's doing a voiceover of him reading a school report but it's him dreaming of godzilla showing up and mm-hmm. destroying all of uh, at least japan's pollution i don't know about all the pollution in the world but destroying right pollution it's funny how we see heteri immediately in the movie like yeah, they don't the, waste any time. Even in the title sequence, uh-huh. we get to see the head right there. But then uh, Hedorah shows up immediately once the titles are over, too. Like with the, the our our child protagonist is on the the uh, the shore, and, and his father is going down in the water and stuff. And then Hedorah flies directly over him, puts yeah. the knife up and stabs it, and it just goes through all the sludge. And yeah, which actually serves to. Uh, it serves a story point because it helps to show you what kind of a creature that Hedera is and show you that he's a, impervious to most forms of attack. Yeah, and but we definitely don't have a situation where the monster shows up an hour into the movie. No. Very, yeah, the, the timing's nice and immediate for us yeah, to, and- to get, start getting used to this very interesting multifaceted kaiju. Yeah. And Godzilla doesn't waste much time showing up either. It's actually no. one of the fastest times that he, that he shows up. I actually timed it. I think it's about 12 to 13 minutes into the movie. Mm-hmm. There's one part at 1145 in, and we, we get that first cartoon animation thing and Hedera is drinking from the, the, the oil tankers. Yes. That it's incredibly cool. Uh, it, but like this whole animation style, that was very indicative of the time. There was a lot of cartoons that were coming out that had this same look and the same kind of uh, tone. About 19 minutes and 10 seconds in, we get our 70s music at the club. And that uh, it makes the dance competition uh, in Ebera, it makes that look totally square. Yeah, this is, that might be arguably the trippiest sequence in the entire movie. Yeah, the trippiest sequence is at 2518. And that's when we get our Terry Gilliam moment, 
with everyone uh, in the club with the, with their heads looking like, like fish, like fish. And what there's, was he? There's drinking? totally like well, it, there's a scene in Fair and Loathing in Las Vegas that totally is going on. It is totally the same thing. It has to be a reference. We we know that Terry Gilliam had to have seen this. We know that his mind works about the same way as as this movie works. But uh, that's there's a scene in Fear and Loathing. If you've seen that, that that that's that's what we're where we're going with it. But it's uh, it's definitely one of the weirdest things in any Godzilla movie ever. Yeah, seriously. Especially considering it doesn't have anything to do with the monsters. Uh uh-uh. uh It's in the human plot. Yeah. What was he drinking? There had no to have been idea. something in that stuff. <laughs> I don't know. Because uh, that would have been my thought. I, I, I that, that he even seemed to have that kind of look on his face. Like, what did I just drink? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why am I seeing this? Why am I seeing this? It's funny, like he he actually was surprised at it though, and so he wasn't planning to see something like yeah. this. Yeah, and then he had all those go-go dancers and his girlfriend in that crazy outfit, mm-hmm. some sort of bizarre cat suit that looked like it was sort of flesh-colored and then covered with all these designs that you could almost say were tattoos. It's she just, was doing her Miley Cyrus impression. Yeah, it was just, it was, except no twerking, thank God. But, but it was so weird. I, I it just, I had no idea how to react to it. It's, it, it almost doesn't even seem to really have anything to do with the rest of the movie. It's, it's just there. But there's a lot of things like that in this movie. <laughs> well, we had to have the, the rude awakening at the club, though. That, that part Yeah, was definitely. It plays into all, that. It all comes down the stairs and they, all are completely thrown back and they yeah. to, everybody stops what they're doing. And they yeah, suddenly stand there and then they look at the poor little kitty that's on the steps. Oh, that poor cat. Yeah. I felt so sorry. I, I have a distinct memory of watching this movie on VHS and my mom, who is, who absolutely loves cats, walked in at that point in the movie. And I remember her saying, oh, poor kitty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really well, uh, well shot, well, pretty convincing image. I wonder how many of the people in that club were thinking they were still on drugs at that point. <laughs> yeah, I that. yeah, you wouldn't want to be on drugs at that point because then all this stuff just totally kills your buzz. Like all of them had theirs killed. Oh yeah. Now, when I said the you know Godzilla shows about twelve, thirteen minutes in, there's I've read a lot of stuff. A lot of commentators pointing out that. That shot when Godzilla comes on screen, they have argued that it's meant since he's being silhouetted against the setting sun, they are arguing that it's meant to be indicative of the Japanese flag because Possibly. of the sun on there, saying that you know Godzilla is Japan's hero. And I thought that was a very interesting take on things. He is the hero. For sure. Yeah, but it's like making him very distinctly, you know, this is Japan's hero. Well, I think in this movie, uh, Godzilla does represent the Japanese national spirit. I would agree with you there. And it comes from a conservative direction where it's like we only have this much land in Japan. We have to take care of it. That's a that's a pretty, you know, it's about protecting the homeland and protecting your culture's homeland, really. And so I think that's where the environmentalist part is partially coming from. It's like, it's just like I said in Japan, there are a lot of movements in Japan that uh, are from the rest of the world, but Japan often tends to do them a little bit more conservatively. At about 30 minutes and 36 seconds into the movie, we get our, that, that another uh, animation and it's our, it's the factory that's eating up all the plant life 
and it has it. little eyes on it and the, the yeah, big and then little claw arms. machine hands coming mm-hmm. out. And... Yeah, and the factory goes bigger and bigger, and then the pollution draws Hedera to it, and then Hedera starts flying. And it's so amazing. Then we get whacked upside the head with the actual real effects of Hedera, you know, the deaths and the injuries. Uh, at about 37 minutes and 42 seconds in, Ken calls his father, and literally all hell breaks loose. Ken's on the phone in the phone booth, and he's extremely directly threatened by the explosions. The shock of all the explosion like blows this phone booth apart. Shatters the glass. Yeah, and then his uh, mom, who's leading the exercise group, Hedera goes over them, and then they all fall to the ground. Uh, and then showing the kid running by the corroded jungle gym as he tries to get to safety. I mean, that, that was very uh, effective. Yeah, the, the mom and those girls were the lucky ones. All they did was choke on those fumes. Yeah, and then people getting outright murdered by the pollution and Ken seeing the skeletons on the ground and then his eyes start hurting. Wow. And then that construction worker. That uh, was the most disturbing yeah. one for me. Yeah, and, and so we, we end up with 1,600 people killed and 30,000 injured. And so that's, wow. People who They're weren't actually putting numbers to this. Yeah, people who weren't expecting anything serious, you know, because a lot of these haven't been serious lately, for the most part. Uh, all of a sudden we get this, and it's like, wow. I had forgotten about that construction worker when I rewatched this recently. It's one of the most memorable parts. <sighs> Very amazing. Just, I'm just like, oh my gosh. He jumps mm-hmm. off of the building. He sees Hedera coming. It's not because he succumbed to the fumes. He jumps mm-hmm. before he gets there. And unfortunately, it reminds me of about stories from 9-11, hearing about people jumping out of the window there, just in sheer panic. Yeah. What was well, going and, on. And, yeah, and because the, the flames were, were coming. To I them. know. And it's just, Oh man. And then to to make it even worse, we actually see what happened to the guy after he jumped. He dissolved on the way down. Mm-hmm. I just my gosh. <laughs> Thanks, movie. Yeah. <laughs> Nightmare fuel. <laughs> and then we have two other really effective animations going on. We get the one with the uh, the people breathing through the breathing masks. That and it was people, you know, all the masks were being sold, anti-hetera gas masks and yada 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 and then, that uh, might be actually the most disturbing animation out of all of them and then the one that it's about nuclear fission and it explains nuclear fission and yeah it suddenly hetero actually has n- nuclear power yeah which is very bizarre at that point i it felt like it was almost turning into an educational film <laughs> it, well, it turns into an ab- like an education slash advocacy uh yeah public service announcement on yeah. on drugs or something. Yeah, which actually makes sense because I think I read someplace that uh, that Bano his background was with, was with documentaries and makes I think sense. it shows in that. I think the two two of the most absolutely effective parts are at 46 minutes and 35 seconds in and the other one is at 47 minutes and 20 seconds in. And they're the, the I think they're some of the greatest parts of any Godzilla movie. All the people who are on all these little TV screens, 
and then it gets composited and then composited more. And all these people who are casted in a situation that they can't control, meaning the pollution, there's nothing they can do about it. And they are expressing their frustration at all these massive problems. It's very powerful. It's very indicative of the times and the way movies were made back then. And then, like, back then, pollution was everywhere, and everyone wanted a, a way to get rid of it because it was making people sick. But it was, it's just, it really accentuates how frustrated the public must have been at that point. And if you pay attention to those individual screens in that sequence, there's some very weird things in imagery in a lot of those. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the the one that stands out the most, some of it is they're actually showing scenes from the movie. And then a lot of it is people talking and yelling, and it sounds like they're trying to yell over each other, even though it's individual screens. Mm-hmm. But the one that was the weirdest was there was one of a crying baby, and it looked like it was surrounded by yes. mud it, the sludge or something, or whatever. a yeah. sludge. Uh-huh. And I just thought, what? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's so it's, weird. Oh, it's not weird. It's it's very. Um, I think effective. it's effective. It is very effective because I think the, I think what it's trying to get across is that. What kind pollution, of world do we want our children to grow yeah, up? Yeah, and it, it's saying that you know that pollution's victims are as small as a baby. Yeah, everybody. Yeah, yeah, and then Ken's uncle decides to do something really stupid, which is at least according to this movie is really stupid. He plans a party to demonstrate against pollution, and they end up accomplishing nothing, and then a whole lot of them get killed, including uh, Ken's uncle. The movie's teaching us a pretty savage lesson about activism here, isn't it? Pretty it's a big very indictment of the satire. movement, too. Yeah, and it's a pretty big indictment of the movement. Everything they do is ineffective and symbolic, and then Hedera just goes and, well, kills them? Yeah, it's... He wanted, it, He was originally organizing it as this this rally, this demonstration against pollution, and then they, they wanted a million youth there, a million kids, and there was about 100. Mm-hmm. And so the, he just decides, well... We'll have a party because it's kind of a eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. Well, and the thing sort is, of like, a mentality. It, like it, what actually happened in Japan was, in order to get rid of this pollution, you know what actually was the saving grace of everything? It was legislation. The diet passed a whole bunch of laws, and so then uh, the pollution got a lot better. And I think the, the all the activists they didn't have anything really to do with that, and instead uh, it was legislation that actually did something and it's interesting looking at the scene when they're presenting that stylistically because it's actually in black and white showing you all the kids on mount fuji and they're just hanging around doing nothing and while he's just playing a little a little bit on his guitar and then someone says something like oh nobody showed up and then he strums it and as he strums Uh it it goes back to color and it says well we're we're just going to throw a party yeah very interesting choice stylistically and I think it's meant to be ironic and another part of a rather biting satire yes it's very cynical yeah I I can't help but wonder I mean you we you know we've talked a bit in the last couple of episodes about student demonstrations and now watching this movie knowing about all of the student movements that had gone on just a few years before this I can't help but wonder if maybe that was in the filmmaker the back of the filmmakers minds with these kids, that's why they're making such a, you know, such a satire, satirical co- commentary on what they're doing. Yeah, in, in a way, this movie is almost playing the part of the old fogey that's, that's just, yo, you hippies, 
get a haircut and, and stuff. Yeah, I've actually heard some people refer to these youth characters as Japanese hippies, which... Pretty much are. They pretty much are. Yeah, and then, and then we, we get to watch uh, Ken's uncle get brutally heterod to death. Um, but then from that point on, from about 52 minutes and 22 seconds, then the whole movie becomes really fascinating to look at, even more so. The Heterokaiju is definitely so interesting. It, it changes forms, and it's throwing sludge at Godzilla. It's even shooting a, a ray. Uh, from a its eye. Yeah, and the way Heteron moves around and how Heteron behaves is so interesting to look at. The I way f- that Heteron moves around and the way it mysteriously does all these interesting attacks on Godzilla. I think Heteron's got a bit of a sadist streak in him. Because he laughs at this at Godzilla's suffering, yeah, uh, during their battles, yeah, it does. I think he takes quite a bit of pleasure in it. You can tell that there is a certain level of intelligence with Hedera, mm-hmm. yeah. Even being, though he originally a cosmically sourced uh, monster, yeah. Even though he originally showed up on Earth as a microscopic organism, mm-hmm. but it's, it's it's really cool how Godzilla uses his mind to figure out how to defeat Hedera because it's like Godzilla has to think his way mm-hmm. through the, through the problem. And it's I, the way our human characters have to. Yeah. And well. actually that accounts for, I think a lot of the decisions that they made with how the, the Kaiju battles in this are staged because uh, the, the battles in this are a little bit slower paced, not quite as intense, a little more plotting, but I think it's the nature of Hedera because Hedera can't move around that fast. And also because Godzilla's normal modes of attack don't work. Mm-hmm. So that's why he spends a lot of time Pretty kind of early on in the movie we get to notice that nothing Godzilla normally does works. Yeah, and like that's punches through it and nothing happens. Yeah. And that's why there's a lot of parts in the movie where you just see Godzilla just kind of posturing and always remaining at a kind of a combative stance like I can't yeah, go after he, this thing but Godzilla I, reacts a whole lot. Yeah. You can see Godzilla react to all these weird all these weird things that Hedera is doing. Yeah. And might I add, Hedera is the most disgusting opponent Godzilla has ever fought. And not just in terms of the fact that he's made out of sludge, but even some of the, the sound effects that they use for Godzilla's attacks. Yeah, it's pretty gross. They're they're absolutely gross. It's just, it's waiting for a bunch of crude jokes to be made. And I, I can admit they were going through my head when I was watching it. It was just, it's just disgusting. Actually, I think I can remember showing this movie to some friends when I was younger, and I think they were making the, you know, the disgusting jokes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, yeah. Uh, especially that scene when Godzilla's in that hole and Hedera is trying to drown him in mud. That he just He's a sludge or whatever. That, yeah, know. that he just drops out of himself into there, and I'm just like, mm-hmm. God, that is just disgusting to think about. Well, there's a lot to clean up on the set after. Oh, I bet. I would love to know how they how they did a lot of that. I want to know how they did that pit sequence because I I bet you Nakajima wasn't having fun (laughs) at that point. No, it doesn't look like a lot of fun. It's amazing how many of these Nakajima did, just one after the other after the other for so long. That's because Nakajima is hardcore. (laughs) Uh, At about fifty nine oh seven into the movie. This is one of my favorite moments. Godzilla moves his tail, and he touches this rock, and moves this rock. And then Hedera gets distracted, 
And then we get that wonderful shot of Godzilla punching right into the camera lens, which was Hedera's, supposed to be Hedera's eye. I love that. Technique-wise, that is so incredibly cool. It's very short, too. But, it, like, press pause or something when you when you see that. I mean, it's, it's really cool to, to look at. I almost want a poster that looks like that. Oh, with that image. It'd be a great screensaver. It'd be a great gift, too. Something to yeah. make a gift. When uh, MTV in 1998 gave Godzilla a Lifetime Achievement Award, they used that as part of the, the, the video montage for him. It's good to use in any Godzilla montage. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> and I have to admit... When I saw that sequence, the first thing that went through my mind was, you put your eye out, kid. Yeah. Actually, uh, I think for Godzilla, it was uh, it was well-deserved retribution because Hedera had uh, spat some sludge in, in his face and it blinded him in one eye. So I think he was just going for Hedera's eye and saying, see, now, we're, now it's even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Godzilla uh, got a lot of stuff thrown at him, uh, that, like all this burning sludge and stuff. Very uh, A lot of really good effects. Yeah. Did you catch that there was a, a nice little a Japanese pop culture reference in the movie? Godzilla does the, the Ultraman pose. Oh, yeah. When he crosses his arms, when uh, Hedera fires the laser beam at him, and he does that, that's the Ultraman pose. Yeah. When, uh, when, Ultraman, fires his, when, when Ultraman fires his, I think it's called the Specium mm. Ray, it's his finishing move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just I thought that was great. I think that was just a little joke that Nakajima had come up with yeah. on set to do. And then it's like he does it and then his hand gets hit by the the, the, the laser and he's like, mm-hmm. "Ow!" Yeah. But um it it makes sense because Nakajima played a lot of the the monsters that Ultraman fought mm-hmm. in the the original Ultraman show. Yeah. So, and I fi- he probably figured there's going to be kids watching this, so he threw that, you know, that in there. Mm-hmm. as a nice little reference for them. Brian, what do you think were those white spheres that Godzilla rips out of Hedera toward the end there? When I was younger and I watched it, I think my dad or my mom, one or the other, thought that they were eggs. I've heard some people say they're supposed to be Hedera's eyes, even though they look red when they're in his body. I think it was the eyes. That's Because like, he picks them up and has one in each hand, and then the one has like a dent in it. And yeah. I think that's where... Is to indicate that that's the one that Godzilla punched. So I think that that's and like the eyes are the only thing that isn't sludge. Yeah. In hetero, I mean supposedly, and so I, um, yeah, I just assumed it was eyes. Yeah, I just remember that being another piece of the weirdness of this movie when I was watching it. You know, as a as a younger fan, I just thought, what in the world are those things? Yeah, it's like if you make a hetero costume or whatever, you're gonna have the eyes as a big part of it, but then the rest of it's just going to be an amalgamation of sludge-related matter. But yeah, I, I think it was the eyes. Well, it's like a video game where you kill the boss and then the boss comes back. Yeah. <laughs> this is like one of the earliest times that we get to see the... You've defeated the boss, you know. Now for boss level two. Yeah. Three, even, depending on what game you're at. Oh, th- and that's something you see a lot particularly in japanese video games the oh, yeah. multi-form bosses mm-hmm. it's ridiculous i was like haha you have beat me nope here is my true form yeah, i'm gonna turn into something a lot harder to defeat haha <laughs> it's like and you just stop and think why did you do this at the start <laughs> yeah 
I think it's hilarious how people get so bent out of shape over Godzilla flying at the end. As if the rest of the scenes with Godzilla and Hedera in this movie were serious. Because they're not. Most of these scenes that Godzilla has with Hedera, there's quite a bit of uh, expression and a lot of, quite a bit of humor in them. Uh, so it didn't really catch me as something that I would get upset about. I guess it's a good way to entertain the audience at the end because you want to have something fun at the end mm-hmm. because you've been going through this movie and with all this heavy, heavy messaging. And so I think that's why they put it in there. Bano uh, stated that it was included in the movie as comic relief to lighten things up. Cause it's a very dark movie Just along with the military incompetence. Yeah. And how they, nothing, they, nothing they do seems right or ends up working. Did you know that that was coming before you watched it? Because it's something that gets talked about a lot in the fandom. When I watched the movie, I had no idea it was coming. Absolutely no idea. I think I did. I don't know. I thought it was just funny. I think that I think that's how the audience reacted when they saw it. I wish I could remember how I re- responded to it the first time that I saw this movie. I can't. You would think I would remember, but I can't really. I can't really think of it. It didn't turn me against the movie like it's done for a lot of people. But I, I probably reacted to it the same way I did the whole rest of this movie. It's just like, this is just weird. It, it's very strange. It goes down, honestly, as probably one of the top five biggest WTF moments in the entire franchise. I don't know if you treat it seriously, it is. But I don't treat it seriously. Like It's just comic relief at the end. I think what it is is a lot of fans look at this movie and they feel like the tone is kind of all over the place. Because at points it's dark and disturbing, and other points it's surreal and strange, and then it decides it to be funny so, and goofy. But it does so with a major purpose, though. Mm-hmm. And that's it's, but if you consider that the film is coming from an environmentalist lesson teaching direction, then really the tone's spot on. Because it's talking about the seriousness of how bad all this pollution stuff is, which totally plugs into what was going on in society at the time. And so I don't, I don't know, I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's a matter of tone. I think it's the the purpose of the movie. It has its own tone. This concludes part two of the podcast. On to related topics. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, we talk about some related topics uh, that either the movie brought up in the film itself or was going on in Japan at the time the film was released. So... For this one, we have the environmentalist movement in Japan, which was brought on by all of the pretty radically high amount of pollution that Japan was able to cultivate during mostly the 60s when all of this hyper-industrialization occurred. Before this, though, we've had a number of things going on in the world that even, you know, far back to the 50s, about pollution actually killing people, just like in this movie is depicted quite a bit. There was the Great Smog of London, and that happened in 1952, and it killed 12,000 people. This kind of thing was very real. And then uh, also uh, New York had a very bad smog issue, and uh, it killed people too. And then also, currently, I think probably one of the biggest ones would be Mongolia because there is just a giant amount of uh, pollution and their economy is pretty dated. It's not 
very high tech and and they burn a lot of coal and they burn a lot of other stuff and they're the pollution is getting so bad that people are protesting in the streets about it because their children and infants are, are getting these just hellacious respiratory diseases and that's that's really tragic to see you know babies practically you know infants getting so sick from just breathing the air another one would definitely be the uh, the bhopal disaster in india which uh, was extremely bad but look, yeah, look look that up too. And then in America, we have the whole Rachel Carson Silent Spring phenomenon going on, which you know partially a little bit of that was actually propaganda. But uh, the government failed to regulate pollution as it increased, and so you have parts of society that aren't concerned about those kind of issues, and then all of a sudden it keeps getting worse. And so it's like it's just like from All Monsters Attack, where you have society on the whole it's like something with society went wrong just like in all monsters attack where this this very industrial landscape that the kids have to grow up in and then uh with with this we we get a lot of the same thing it's a, it's a it's a directional thing where it seems like society is on the wrong track and we need to fix things there was a lot of pollution in Japan, though, particularly, and it was uh, very concentrated at times, too. And there are four different diseases that actually came out of this. Yeah, the four pollution diseases of Japan, although one of them was actually pre-war. It was called the Itai Itai disease, which means it hurts, it hurts, because the the victims of the, of this disease would were suffering from a lot of chronic pain or often crying out because of you know how much pain that they were in. Uh, it occurred in 1912, and it was actually because of cadmium poisoning. Uh, there was in drinking water in the Jinsugawa River. It had been dumped there by the uh, Mitsui Mining and Smelting Company. Uh, the victims suffer from like debilitating pain, as I had mentioned, bone fractures from mild trauma. They could break bones just from doing stuff like coughing. That is a kind of a horrific thing to think about. That's how brittle the, their bones were. And then they had anemia, bone deformities, and kidney disorders. <sighs> Stay away from cadmium is all I can say. A, a big one was, though, is the Minamata disease. Yeah. Yeah, which afflicted people in the city of Minamata in the Kumamoto Prefecture in 1956. It was caused by the ingestion of fish from Minamata Bay contaminated with methylmercury, which attacked the central nervous system. and uh, the yeah, neurological yeah, stuff. Yeah, people were suffering from numbness in arms and legs, impairment of balance, fatigue, ringing in the ears tunnel vision, deafness, and even slurred speech. They could even communicate. Mm -hmm. Many patients even went insane because of all of this and died within a month. Yeah, mercury is, yeah. It's nasty. And heavy doses can do all yeah, that. Yeah, it's nasty. There was a lot of research done to try to figure out what exactly was the cause of it. And it, the most likely culprit seemed to be the, uh, the Chiso Corporation, which had been dumping the... the the methylmercury out into the water. And then you had another case of Minamata disease in the Niigata prefecture in 1965. But that one was much more contained because it had been detected early, thankfully. 
Yeah, the one in Kumamoto was like 35 plus years that they were yeah. dumping mercury into the wastewater. Yeah. yeah, that one, they the, they couldn't quite figure out what the cause of it was. There's been a lot of research done trying to figure it out. And it's believed that the most likely cause was the the Showa Denko factory on the Okano River. They had been dumping the mercury in there. But, yeah, chemical plant, right? Yeah. But the one that we, that's most pertinent, actually, to the film, as we mentioned in part one, is Yokaichi. Yokaichi is a city at the center of the Miyai prefecture. It's called the Town of Petroleum because there's a lot of oil refineries there. Oil refineries were be, started to be constructed there in 1955 and then again in 1963 because at that point, uh, Miti and Prime Minister Akeda were trying to move Japan away from coal and transition to petroleum. And since most of the oil that they were getting came from the Middle East. There was a, there was a, a lot of sulfur in it, uh, approximately taking approximately two percent sulfur, which created white smog all over the city. And because of that, there was a, a huge outbreak of respiratory diseases, bronchitis, emphysema, all you know, stuff like that. Asthma. Asthma. Yeah, yeah. This is called yokaichi uh, yokaichi asthma. Mm-hmm. Think of it like this. In non-polluted areas, you had about 3% of the population was being afflicted with bronchitis, whereas in Yokaichi, 5 to 10% of the population aged 40 was suffering from bronchitis. Yeah, it's about three times as much. Yeah, it's crazy. They tried to correct this by having taller smokestacks, and I can't believe anyone thought that this would actually work, because all it ended up doing was spreading the... The, the talk farther it's yeah spreading it farther <laughs> it's like you guys never you didn't think about this how is making these taller supposed to make this stuff go away rather ridiculous actually uh, yeah i don't understand i mean that's a that's a multi-million dollar mistake right there it's just i don't know sounds like more of a stalling tactic if anything yeah and think of it like uh, think of it like this this got so bad and it's gone on for so many years that a class action lawsuit was actually filed against Showa Yokai- the Showa Yokaichi Oil Company. It had 544 people. It was adjudicated in September of 1970, just a year before this movie was released. And the numbers have only continued to increase over the years. And studies have been done and found out that there was a 10 to 20-fold increase in COPD and asthma mortality rates in Yokaichi compared to the rest of the population. Yeah, it's pretty bad. This is nasty. And the term Yokaichi asthma is now a term that is being used for similar ailments across the world now, say, they've because they've diagnosed things like this in places like Mexico City and mainland China. And it was Yokaichi specifically in seeing the suffering of that city and what had become of it because of all of this that it's inspired Bano all, to all make this movie. Term. Yeah. Considering that this is what was going on in Japan at the time, these these high profile pollution incidents, I am not surprised that it led to something like this. Yeah, and also the the year before this movie was released, uh, that was when the EPA was founded. It was in the nineteen nineteen seventy, and then uh, nineteen seventy one was when uh, the Japanese government formed an equivalent, and then I believe it was somewhere around the nineties that the EPA equivalent in Japan was actually raised to a cabinet level position as oh, opposed really? to just a department. 
Well, that would make it's sense, like, given what was going yeah, on. Yeah, it was an agency, but now it's like an actual department. Coming from Indiana, I mean, we have a little bit of, we've had some experience with pollution in our state, too. I mean, uh, for, well, for one, you have Gary. Oh, Gary. Pollution, <laughs> like all the, all the stuff up in the region, as it's called, north, the northwest corner of Indiana, which is outside of Chicago. There's a lot of pollution there. Uh, Gary's a scary place. Down in south Indiana, though, like southern Indiana, there is more pollution than in northern Indiana. Uh, and as, a lot of it is because of coal. Yeah, and uh, Indiana is not very lucky because they Indiana has some of the highest sulfur content of coal in 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 the coal of almost any state. I think. I mean, it's very very dirty coal is what it's classified as. Just very dirty. As it's not clean at all. It's a lot of stuff that gets released into the atmosphere. And I remember. Uh, when I was in Bloomington, I just parked my car outside. I didn't have a garage at that point. And I would, there were some mornings that I would wake up and I'd go to my car to go to class. And then the, there would be this soot, layer of soot on top of the car. And it was because they fired up the coal power plant on campus at night. And then they burned it at night. And then they, and so that was why when I went to the car, there was all this soot all over it. And part of it was you know, sulfur from uh, the fact that the coal is just so extremely dirty. Actually in Indiana, one of the most polluting uh, coal power plants in the nation is in Indiana and it's in a uh, Rockport, which is just uh, outside of Evansville or pretty close to it. Uh, and we, there was a report recently where we saw on the news that it was their parents that are going to the doctors and saying that their kids have asthma and that they're getting sick and that they, you know, sometimes are gasping, gasping for breath just because if you, once you get a, the combo of not very much wind, hot weather, and then, uh, people being outside, that's just a bad idea. And so there, we have to get a lot of these ozone warnings and everything. I mean, it's just not, uh, not optimal. It actually sounds a bit like Yokaichi asthma, almost. Yeah. I mean, coal is really, I mean, even so-called clean coal, it's really, really dirty. And you just don't want to be breathing it. I mean, that goes back also to uh, coal miners who get a uh, black lung. Again, not something you want to have. Uh, coal is definitely not a form of energy that you want to use, but it's more something that you have to use because you need it. And instead, you know, there are a lot of alternatives, natural gas, solar, renewable, you know, all the different renewables. But you, you want to try to avoid coal, especially if the coal is really dirty and has a lot of sulfur in it. And that's just uh, even worse. And so, yeah, it's uh, even locally, we have to we have to deal with this. It's just unfortunate that Japan was trying to transition from coal to petroleum, probably thinking it would be a better source of energy and it's it it still came with its own share of problems. Yeah, and Japan, you're they're in a very tough situation just because they can't produce very much energy domestically, and no. so you have to you just have like a sort of series of bad options, and none of them really seem all that all that uh, enticing at all. I can't remember if I've brought this up before in the podcast, but Japan very much is a, a nation of catch-22s, and energy is another one of those catch-22s because they can't really produce any energy themselves. They have to import it, which 
comes with its own drawbacks. And the one energy source that they were producing themselves was nuclear. And then the last five, six years or so, they've become very leery of nuclear energy. Now they're shutting down nuclear power plants. Yeah, a lot of them are not operational today still. Yeah. So it's a very precarious position that they find themselves in. But the silver lining on this is not long after this film was released, Japan really started taking its pollution problem seriously and started remedying it. Yeah, legislation was really what what got a lot of the sulfur out of the air in, in Japan once it was done, and and the there were a lot of uh, there was a whole session of the Diet where practically it was most of the laws that they passed that time were a lot of pollution regulations, and I think it was to get rid of some of the very worst of it for sure, and to get things to go in a in a better direction. In fact, it was it worked out so well that. I've I've read a few places where Japan and a lot of cities in Japan are actually considered to be some of the least polluted in the entire world now. It's a, they've made a lot of progress. And it's a it's a very good thing because the more I look into the pollution issues at this particular time, whew, it's nasty. I can remember growing up growing up in Indiana all my life not nearby any huge cities and always hearing about inner city pollution and things like smog and all of that. But it was always often these giant cities like Los Angeles. Those always seem to be, seem to be the ones that were having all of these major issues. So it was a, I was a little distant from the pollution problem. It was something I had to learn a bit more about as I grew up to realize that it's not just limited to things like smog in big cities. The other related topic that we have is the so-called two Nixon shocks or two Nixon surprises that occurred that uh, Japan was uh, very much affected by. Uh, the first one was when Nixon went to China. And so it was, it was viewed that, that Nixon could actually be the only one that, to do this because he was not so cozy with China to begin with, and that's what made it work. But he, uh, he did a whole state visit, and it really, really caught the Japanese off guard because they did not expect something like this, and they weren't really told about it either. They weren't, uh, they weren't told this really much in advance. And so the, the problem was is that there had always been a, an agreement with, with the United States and Japan that China should not be you know, really messed around with. That was the standard operating procedure actually at the time was containing communism yeah, yeah. and so, that's why we were getting involved in things like the korean and vietnam wars the goal was to contain communism and keep it from spreading yeah and so when nixon visited china that just threw everything up into the air the other nixon shock was the the united states decoupled the u.s dollar from gold and so that fixed exchange rate uh was gotten rid of and then went to a floating exchange rate. Yeah, it was. There was a thing called the uh, the Bretton Woods system that had been set up in 1944 in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, by representatives from 44 different nations. 
and it created a fixed exchange rate that said that every ounce of gold was equivalent to 35 U.S. dollars. And Nixon didn't nullify it technically, but he rendered it pretty much void with his decision. And also, the, uh, the, at that time, the U.S. imposed a 10% surcharge on all imports into the United States. And that was the other part of the Nixon, second Nixon shock was, was that, because Japan's economy is so export-driven. And so then everything that Japan exports to the United States gets a 10% surcharge slapped on it, which makes those products more expensive, uh, which is not in uh, Japan's interest at all. He also passed an executive order that froze prices and wages for 90 days. And this was the first time that there had been a government price control imposed. All of these were actions were taken to combat inflation and unemployment, and also because of the increasing pressure from the rest of the world, because a lot of other nations had left the Bretton Woods system by this point. So the United States was one of those holdouts. Yeah, and, and one of the results that uh, occurred was that the Japanese yen went up in value compared to the U.S. dollar. And that's uh, something that the Japanese also want to avoid. Uh, and that is they, they want the exchange rate to be so that there's, it's a lot more yen to a dollar rather than less yen to one dollar. And there's a, there's a term that we came across called endaka, and endaka just means a higher exchange rate uh, between the yen and the dollar. And endaka is viewed as bad because it it reduces the amount of uh, exports that Japan can get away with. And so there's uh, so endaka is generally a negative thing. And think of it like this: right after Nixon made the announcement for this. Japan, the, the Bank of Japan bought $1.3 billion to keep the exchange rate at 360 yen, and, but then its foreign exchange reserves increased to $4 billion within a few weeks. Also, think of it like this. In 1966, the United States had $13.2 billion in gold reserves, while all of the non-U.S. banks, we're talking the rest of the world, had $14 billion. They had just a little bit more than the United States, if you took the uh, combined. That's how crazy this is. And only $3.2 billion of that gold in the U.S. reserves was foreign holdings. That's how much they had. So that should tell you something. That's why Bretton Woods was such a big deal. This Nixon shock initially seemed like a, a success, at least politically, for Nixon. The, the public saw it as protection against price gougers. The Dow jumped 33 points the day after the announcement was made. But it didn't really do anything to stave off the, the stagflation of the 1970s. And the dollar plunged. So the merits of of this are debated quite a bit, even to this day, whether or not it was a good idea. And personally, just looking at it from a, I get a very surface level. I, I'm no economist. I'm not a financial expert, but it really honestly just seemed like it was a, a bad idea. Probably earned Nixon some immediate political points for at least a little while, but 
that's about all it really accomplished. From a Japanese standpoint, it wasn't the currency revaluation as much as it was the 10% tax on imports, uh, which that that really uh, also came out of left field, and they didn't like that at all in Japan. And it's, especially when it's all imports, and you're just treating all imports as if they're the same thing, no matter what country they come from or what they are, it just, uh, I think it didn't help with the relationship between the U.S. and Japan. And then the China thing as well. It just didn't, uh, the Japanese weren't signing on to that very quick. Though we did have these two uh, Nixon shocks in the uh, economy, um, had to put up with those. Uh, however, uh, the economic growth in 1971 was 4.69%, so still doing pretty well. I hope that the, the, our, the, our related topics this time have uh, helped to shed some light on what was going on in Japan and how it's a very idiosyncratic movie, but there, there are reasons that, uh, that it exists, reasons why it was made. It's a very important reasons. And so I'm hoping that now seeing what was going on at the time, you know, can help some help you understand that just a little bit better. In in which case, we here at Kaiju Vision Radio would like to uh, to dedicate this episode in uh, memory of Yoshimitsu Bano, who unfortunately died within the last year or so, and it was a it's a tremendous loss. Um, I don't think the guy really got the love that he deserved from the fans because he made such a strange movie, but you know, that was, it's very dividing for, you know, for fans, but a lot of people are starting to find out more now is he never stopped loving Godzilla. He always had a great appreciation for the character and for the franchise was always very proud of the work that he had done. And about 10 years ago, that passion really manifested again because he was over in Hollywood trying to get a new Godzilla movie produced and through a lot of very interesting twists and turns that led him to legendary pictures, it became the the 2014 film directed by Gareth Edwards, which then led to the MonsterVerse. What I think fans need to stop and realize is that if, is that if not for Bano, we wouldn't be having this new kaiju renaissance that we're experiencing right now. Because without Godzilla 2014, there may have not been a Shin Godzilla and then all the other films that are being produced now. Yeah, he was one of the producers on Godzilla 2014, right? Yeah, and it was that passion that he had that really inspired everyone at Legendary Pictures to make this movie happen. So losing him is a tremendous loss, I think, for the fandom. And I'm hoping that because of this, that fans will start to reevaluate Bano and his film. He was a fan, just like all the rest of us, and and loved everything about Godzilla. So we can't fault him that. All right, uh, let's, uh, let's close up shop here, shall we, Brian? Our next episode will be Godzilla vs. Gigan, a.k.a. Godzilla on Monster Island, released in 1972, and it's one that the both of us have been looking forward to. Yeah, it happens to be my favorite film. If you listen to the introduction episode that was in there, um, I'm really looking forward to this. 
If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherchel, and I edited this podcast. And I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. Sayonara! Sayonara!